This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So uh, we're continuing the same format. The next uh, is the uh, clinical panel. And I have to say one of the uh, most interesting uh, things that I've had the chance to, to do since joining GHS um, is to learn about the fabulous work that uh, our orthopedic surgeons uh, are conducting here at UCSF in, in global health research. Who knew uh, that? And yet, it's a, it's a very uh, a visible, active group. Um, I also had the chance to go to the Orthopedic Trauma Association meetings um, uh, this past year. And if you want to go to a meeting where the slides are not meant to be looked at after lunch, think about orthopedic trauma um, as an example of that, but uh, it's a major problem, major burden of disease worldwide. And so uh, Sam Morshad, uh, who is um, in that, uh, in that uh, department, uh, will introduce uh, his panel. Sam? And I'll give him the uh, slides for the... Uh, well, I, hopefully I won't need it. Um, Thank you, Paul, for having me. My name is Sam Morshed. I'm uh, one of the orthopedic uh, trauma surgeons here. I, my clinical practice is at San Francisco General, and I've been listening to these, uh, these amazing talks and wondering you know, why I'm here, and I, I've been thinking about it. And I think one of the reasons is that I, I look at all of this work with, uh, you know, with such a fascination, uh, almost a childlike fascination, given our nascent programs in orthopedic trauma research um, globally. So it's, it's really exciting for me to be here with you all today. I, I, it's my pleasure to introduce a very, very distinguished group of, uh, of, um, of uh, investigators um, to talk about their work in patient-oriented clinical research um, globally. I think as they, uh, as they discuss some of the, the lessons they've learned and some of their remarkable achievements, I think they'll also showcase the remarkable diversity of programs going on in clinical research across the campus. So um, with that, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, Nisha Ashari, as uh, was a medical school classmate of mine, and it's been wonderful for me to see the wonderful accomplishments that she's, uh, that she's had over the years. She's currently a, uh, the director of the uveitis um, program at the, um, at the Proctor Institute. Um, she is uh, a, uh, an expert in treatment of inflammatory and infectious diseases of the eye, and that is the area of her uh, clinical research. She currently does clinical trials in, in, uh, in India and elsewhere, looking at, at uh, new treatments and therapies for these, these patients. So, Nisha, Looking forward to your talk. Thank you, Sam. I'm, I'm very excited to be here, and I think the symposium is a great idea. And Sam and I were medical school classmates, so it's great to see him after uh, so, so long. So I'm going to share with you some of the work that we've been doing from the Proctor Foundation that, that I've been specifically working on um, uh, globally. So I'm, I'm on the faculty at the Francis I. Proctor Foundation, and we're an organized research unit here at UCSF. And our mission is to stamp out a blindness around the world, and that's specifically blindness due to infection and inflammation. So we see patients and we teach, but we all have research programs that really focus on, on this goal. And so as of 2010, what are the causes of blindness in the world? 
And so these are um, the main causes listed from the most common to the least. And you can, I've highlighted a couple there in yellow that we specifically work on at the Proctor Foundation. So corneal ulcers, which you see listed as number four there, and that's one that I've worked quite a bit on and I'm going to share with you today. And then trachoma is down here, which is still a major cause, especially in Africa. And Tom Leitman, who's my colleague at Proctor, is, I would say, I actually won't hesitate to say this, I think he's the foremost trachoma researcher in the world. And unfortunately, he, he couldn't be here today, but he's made a lot of progress in this field. So our work on corneal ulcers really can't begin. We can't really talk about it without talking about our collaborators in India. And so let's focus in on India here and all the way to the south of India, to Madurai. Madurai is the home of Aravind Eye Hospital. And Aravind is a very special place to us. It's considered the largest eye care system in the world. And it's composed of five directly managed hospitals and then three indirectly managed hospitals. So they're actually continuing to expand and oversee hospitals all over India. They make a variety of eye products. They also do a lot of research, and they train an immense amount of trainees from all around the world, including U.S. residents. So when I was at Harvard as an as a, um, ophthalmology resident, we actually went there to learn cataract surgery. And they've been awarded many, many um, prestigious awards in recognition of their humanitarian efforts. So Aravind is a special place in that they see an immense number of patients with eye problems, over 1.7 million patients a year, and do over 250,000 cataract surgeries every single year, which is more than a lot of countries do in an entire year. The other thing to note is that two-thirds of their care is completely free, and it's a self-sustained model without private donations. Um, basically, they're able to be so efficient, and from the paying patients, they're able to support all of the care of the two-thirds um, of the patients who are considered free. So how did we start this collaboration between Proctor and Aravind? So in 1991, some faculty from here went there, um, and, and they were organizing this course on epidemiology of blindness. And during that time, they realized that this would be a very good collaboration to try to explore what the incidence of various conditions are. And so Proctor um, put a lot of effort in to actually set up a microbiology lab there and to really set up the infrastructure for studies. And all of this was funded by a private grants. And then they started to do studies together, um, epi studies in uveitis and in, um, on corneal ulcers. And then the first trial they did was in 1998. This was privately funded, a clinical trial on antioxidants for uh, prevention of cataracts, followed by some corneal ulcer prevention studies. All of this set the stage for pursuing larger-scale clinical trials that have been funded by the NIH. And that takes us to the first one that I've worked on. Um, this was right in 2005 when I was finishing my fellowship at Proctor, and Tom Leitman was very interested in this question, and I started to work with him to look at the role of corticosteroids for bacterial corneal ulcers. So this is a very uh, controversial question in our field. You know, um, corneal ulcers are, are a relatively common disease in ophthalmology and unfortunately have pretty poor outcomes. And a lot of the vision loss is due to scarring. So even though we're getting better and better at treating the infections with antibiotics, we still are left with the scar that causes blindness. And something that has been debated for decades is whether adding adjunctive corticosteroids but um, possibly lower the scarring, modulate the immune response, and lead to better visual outcomes. Now, there's many people out there that will say you absolutely cannot do it. It's not ethical to give steroids, and other people do it routinely. So there's quite a lot of debate. 
So when we look at corneal ulcers, I said that you know it's fairly common, but much more common in certain parts of the world. Like so, so look at Nepal, India, and Bhutan, and you have an incidence of 113 per hundred thousand compared to places like California and Minnesota, where they're much lower, 11 or 27 per hundred thousand. So you can see why it makes sense to collaborate with a place like India in order to answer this question of whether uh, corneal ulcers would would uh, benefit from steroids. And that leads us to this trial called SCUT, or Steroids for Corneal Ulcers Trial, funded by the NEI. All of these names were not being by me. I think I have to give credit to Jack Witcher, who's one of the faculty members now who's retired at Proctor. He's really good at coming up with these these funny acronyms. And this is our collaborator, Dr. Srinivasan in um, Madurai um, at Arabian Eye Hospital. He's a really very uh, well-known cornea specialist there, and he's examining a patient. So Tom Liepman was the PI of this UTAN grant, and this was what I did my K-23 on as well. So that, that was my first grant coming out of fellowship. And so this, this trial recruited 500 patients in India and a few at, um, in the U.S. at Proctor and at Dartmouth. We started enrollment in September of 2006, and we completed everything in uh, three and a half years. We had about 90% retention in the trial, and I have to give credit for that to all of the uh, what are called sisters at Arab and Eye Hospital. And these are basically village girls who are trained by the hospital to run these studies, and they will go out into the, the fields and the farms and track down every patient to bring them back. And that's really how we have such good follow-up in our studies. So I just wanted to highlight some of the the findings from the corneal ulcer trial. Um, This was the primary paper, which was published in 2011. And so the main question was, does adding steroids to the treatment of bacterial corneal ulcers improve vision outcomes, which is our main outcome of interest at three months? And we we had enough power, um, which you can see by our confidence intervals, but we did not find a difference in vision. So basically completely flat, um, almost zero lines better with steroids, so no difference there. And the second question was, well, were there more adverse events? Because a lot of people felt that you could not put steroids on these patients. And so we, for that, we actually also did not find any difference in adverse events at all. And the mo- the main thing that we were worried about were corneal perforations, uh, which can happen and is you know, a very devastating um, adverse event. But there was no difference between the placebo and the corticosteroid arm. Um, how did the worst ulcers do? And this is an interesting question because we had pre-specified this outcome. You know, we took all corneal ulcers in this trial, bacterial corneal ulcers, but we were thinking that maybe the most severe ulcers would have the most to gain or to lose. And these are patients who had less than 2,400, so legally blind, vision due to their corneal ulcers at presentation. And with this pre-specified outcome, we did find almost a two-line benefit in vision at three months with steroids, and this was a significant difference. So this was um, an interesting finding for us. We also uh, were interested in, well, what about if steroids are added early within two to three days of presentation of the corneal ulcer versus later? And we found that that, too, made a difference. So patients who got steroids early had about a line benefit over placebo, and that was a significant finding, too. So in summary for SCUT... We had no difference overall with steroids, but we also, importantly, you know, found no increase in adverse events, so this makes it more comfortable for people to now use steroids um, in these patients. We also looked by organism and found that it actually helped with pseudomonas, but was worse with nocardia. 
keratitis. We had a harmful effect with steroids there. Steroids did seem to be better, have a benefit in the worst um, ulcers, and also seem to help if given early. So one thing I, I mentioned was that we enrolled in the U.S. and in India, but take a look at these numbers. So we enrolled 15 patients out of Dartmouth and UCSF in 485 in India. So you can see that we wouldn't have been able to do this study if we didn't collaborate with Aravind. And many U.S. centers had tried to do this study before and weren't able to because of really just the how, how difficult it is. It would take 50 centers or 100 centers in the U.S. in many years to be able to achieve that. So the other thing is, because the enrollment was relatively fast, um, and you know, within this eye care system, the, that really translated to lower costs. And so the direct costs for that NIH trial were less than $2 million, which is you know, quite a bit, uh, pretty low amount for a clinical trial. The other benefit of us working there was that these cornea specialists have a, just an incredible wealth of knowledge and expertise because they, they treat hundreds of these patients um, you know, a month. And so they were really able to contribute scientifically as well. And we considered our relationship with them to be an equal collaboration. So in terms of authorship, percent effort, we always invited them to the data safety monitoring committee meetings. That's really the way that we've been able to maintain a a successful relationship with them. Some of the hurdles, well, there were some. So obtaining India State Department approval took over a year, actually. And, you know, this, we didn't apply until after we got our NIH funding. And so this was a little bit problematic um, because we, we had a delayed start to our grant. Also, it was very difficult to get permits to send sam- samples outside of India. We wanted all of the cultures, you know, to be verified here and to have other testing done. Um, the other thing is just we, we found that, you know, this was a relative, this was the first NIH trial that Aravin had done, and we had to do, you know, they're great clinicians, but we needed a lot of monitoring, a lot of site visits. So shifting gears a bit, um, I want to touch on the next um, trial that we did. And so when we were enrolling all of these bacterial ulcers, we realized that we weren't doing anything with all the fungal ulcers, and we realized that we really don't know how to treat the people who have fungal corneal ulcers well. So we were thinking about doing a, a research on, on that topic, but really it, it was a, a specific event that really formalized our interest in this. And this was an epidemic that actually happened here and across the world around 2006. And this was a patient that I took care of at Proctor. This is a college student who came in with this here. And you can see that this is a cornea, this is a front of her eye, and this is basically perforating. This is a horrible, horrible situation. And you just can swab it, and you can see that this was fusarium. So this was a fungal um, keratitis. And along, around the same time, people were getting this all around the world. This was a patient from India, another uh, fungal ulcer here. Not quite as bad, but also you can see will you know, lead to blindness. And we realized um, that all of these patients you know, were coming in, and we didn't know how to treat them very well. The only FDA-approved treatment for fungal corneal ulcers was natamycin, and that's a decades-old drug. This epidemic, by the way, was associated with a contact lens solution, and so it was seen all around the world, and, but really told us that we need, we need to study this more. And so that led us to the, what we call the MUT, or mycotic ulcer treatment <laughs> trials. And just give you a warning about these acronyms. So this was NIH-funded, again, to work with Aravind Eye Hospital to really look at how to best treat fungal ulcers. And it's really two trials. The first one, MUT1, compares drops. Voriconazole, which is a drop that's off-label that you probably have heard of for systemic use of various really severe fungal infections. And ophthalmologists have been using basically the same IV solution in the eye. And then natamycin, which is the FDA-approved drug. 
And MUT2, which looks at for more severe ulcers, whether adding oral voriconazole improves outcomes. And so these are the sample sizes for MUT1 and 2, uh, 368 and 240 patients. And I'll share with you MUT1 because that was completed uh, just recently. Actually, the, the DSMC, the monitoring committee, uh, stopped that trial early, MUT1, because of a significant result. And so um, let me show you what, what happened there. So this was MUT1. Uh, and uh, let me just show you right here. So this is a regression model predicting our outcome, which was three-month best spectacle corrected vision. And look right here at natamycin versus voriconazole. And this minus 0.18 logmar means that the patients treated with natamycin had a two-line benefit in vision over voriconazole. And this was a very significant p-value, 0.006. And this effect was seen even more in fusarium species, which is a type of filamentous fungus that's you know, most common, actually, among the filamentous um, fungi, where nanomycin had a four-line benefit in vision over voriconazole, p-value less than 0.001. So you can see why the DSMC stopped the trial. They felt that patients should be getting nanomycin in this trial, and it wasn't really ethical to continue voriconazole. The interesting thing is people were, were paying so much money for voriconazole around the world for this off-label drug because they felt like they, you know, that maybe it would just be better. It's you know, the newest thing. So it turns out it just wasn't the case. Adverse events, um, transplants, that's TPK here, were also higher in the uh, voriconazole arm. So really both in terms of efficacy and safety, the old drug won out here. So for MUT, we learned and we, we applied a little bit earlier for Indian State Department approval. It only took six months versus a year for SCUT. And we, we decided to apply before we got the NIH funding so that we wouldn't have this whole that. Okay, so then, just last topic here. Oh, and so one thing about that. So MUT2 is still continuing. That's the trial on more severe ulcers. And we still, are, we still have to enroll about 100 patients in that trial. So the last thing is uveitis, which is near and dear to my heart. I'm, I'm a uveitis specialist. That's what my, all of my patients have that I see at Proctor. And it's an orphan disease, so it's more rare than corneal ulcers. But it causes a lot of vision loss in the U.S. and worldwide and a lot of blindness as well. And it's understudied. Um, so the treatment of non-infectious uveitis, we start with steroids. But chronic steroids have a lot of side effects. And so we move on to what are called steroid-sparing immunomodulatory agents. So these are basically immune drugs that uh, suppress the immune system and hopefully help with uveitis. Now, unfortunately, we have no FDA-approved medications for the treatment of uveitis, probably because it's a relatively, you know, it's an orphan disease, and drug companies have chosen to really study drugs for other rheumatologic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS. And so in our field, we use these drugs from other fields that have been approved, and we try them in our patients. And unfortunately, sometimes feel like we're practicing trial and error medicine, which I, you know, feel very sad about in this day and age that that's, you know, that, that, that that's what we do, but really that's all we have. We don't have evidence to support what you use first, what works better. We try one medicine. If it doesn't work, we move on to the next. And so that's where really my clinical interest spurred me to uh, really want to do a clinical trial in, in uveitis to really explore a very bread and butter question, which is what immunosuppressive agent should we be using first? And the two most common ones that are used in our field are methotrexate and mycophenolate mofetil. 
And in general, people are using the cheaper drug, methotrexate, first. And then if that fails, they go on to mycophenolate. If that fails, they go on to biologic drugs or you know, other agents. And so I wanted to do a direct uh, a comparative effectiveness trial to really look at the relative efficacy and tolerability of these two medications. And um, so I applied for funding for this. And I forgot to mention, for each of these trials, we always had to do a pilot trial before, which is basically a mini version of a trial ranging from 40 to 80 patients in order to get funding. Um, And so this was funded. um, We've been funded now just this past year by the National Eye Institute to do a five-year um, trial, uh, 216 patients to compare these drugs, and if they fail, they're able to cross over to the other drug. And in my grant, I put in to work with Aravind, UCSF, and Oregon Health and Sciences University. That was the plan until this happened in March 22nd, um, 2013. So this past spring, we were actually in India getting ready to enroll our first patient. We had mailed all the drugs and everything, and I got this. It said, Dear Dr. Acharya, um, the guidelines issued by the government of India regarding liability for uh, clinical trials published in the Gazette, which is an Indian newspaper, on January 30th preclude us from continuing with enrollment of new patients on research trials conducted in India. So they're suspending all enrollment. And basically the NIH suspended trials in, in India. This wasn't because of our trial, but really this was because of a public outcry um, after some HIV trials had resulted in a number of deaths. And, you know, the public kind of went, really um, got very riled up about this, and the government, as a result, passed all of these rules. And the issue is that these, these rules were kind of, um, if you read the exact wording, they're very problematic, you know, from a sponsor standpoint. They say that if anyone has any adverse event in any trial, a local board of uh, people get to decide how much the investigators are liable for. So that's the kind of wording. And you know, NIH really can't take that, that sort of a risk. And so we've been put on hold. Now, NIH is very supportive of our research group still, and so we are still being supported, but we are collaborating with new international sites for the time being. So the fungal ulcer trial, the second one on more severe ulcers, we're moving to Nepal. Tom Leitman is actually there right now um, getting that set up. And another NIH trial has been funded on corneal ulcer prevention in Nepal. And for my FAST trial for uveitis, I'm now um, setting up sites in Mexico, um, Australia, and other sites in the U.S., and maybe other international sites in South America and in Asia. We're still keeping our fingers crossed that the India situation will resolve, but meanwhile, we do have to keep on working with our research program to continue. So just in in conclusion here, these are some points that I I think we've learned along the way. We really feel that international clinical trials can be scientifically exciting and very, very productive. Um, We think the quality can be extremely high with proper monitoring. Um, We also think they can be relatively low cost, especially the way that we're doing it with centers where they have great clinical expertise and and they're efficient. We have found that for all of our trials that have been funded by NIH, we've had to do a pilot study. We've had to really have great data on the numbers of patients they see and actually do basically a mini trial to show feasibility of our, our larger trial. And so that takes pilot funding. Um, Our hurdles have been government approvals, and obviously those hurdles continue now with the situation in India, and have really taught me to not become dependent on any one collaborator, because our research program has to continue. 
And so finally, I just want to acknowledge our various sources of funding, which have mostly been NIH, but also some uh, private groups. And our investigative team, especially Tom Leitman um, and many other people, both at UCSF and our other U.S. collaborators, and our Indian colleagues here, who I hope we'll be able to resume collaborations with. And then finally, our collaborators in Mexico and Australia. Um, thank you very much. Thanks, Nisha. That, I think Paul will add uh, uveitis and, uh, and corneal ulcers to the list of pictures we don't want to see after lunch. Um, uh, th there were a lot of great lessons there. Hopefully we'll have some time in the discussion to come back and, and, and pick your brain about how to, how to deal with those kinds of hurdles as they pop up and doing this kind of work. The next speaker um, I'd like to introduce is Susan Meffert. She uh, comes to us from the uh, Department of uh, Psychiatry, where she's an uh, assistant professor. She's a Burke Family uh, Foundation scholar and um, has, uh, has received numerous awards for her work. I think uh, reading, reading through her resume, uh, I, 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 felt, uh, I felt some kinship in being a fellow researcher in noncommunicable diseases, and especially ones with, I think, a big global burden and uh, one, uh, one that hasn't really got its due so far. Um, so, Susan, we're looking forward to hearing about your work. Thank you so much for that introduction. I appreciate it. I wanted to say thank you to... Uh, before I start, to all the global health mentorship that I've had here at UCSF um, that has helped, um, I really think, uh, uh, launch the, the field and push the field forward in global mental health research here. Um, I was lucky to be, uh, be here when Haile started Global Health Sciences uh, programs and a member of the first class of the Global Health Clinical Scholars, and also um, as uh, as Sam mentioned, I, um, a member of the first group of Burke awardees, um, and those those experiences have been invaluable for um, my ability to to do this work. So I'll tell you a bit today about uh, global mental health research, and I'm um, the way that I set this up was to try to give you uh, some background in the field, since I know this is probably new to most of you. So I'll start out um, talking about it generally, and then I'll tell you more about my research after that. Um, most important thing to notice from the beginning is that mental health, the field of global mental health research, is an extremely exciting field right now. And I'll start out by giving you a little bit of history. Going back to 1990 with the Global Burden of Disease Study, of course the DALIs, the Disability Adjusted Life Years, being controversial measures, but nonetheless very important ones for defining the global burden of chronic disease, which included mental illness. One of the shocking things for psychiatrists as well coming out of that Global Burden of Disease Study was the massive burden of mental disorders in low- and middle-income countries. And they thought about it. And <laughs> in 2001, another global burden of disease study came out, which once again showed a huge burden of mental disorders in low- and middle-income countries. Finally, six years later, The Lancet said, hey, we should do something about this. There's a big burden of mental disorders. And, um, and they, ha they issued the call to action um, to do something about these, uh, these illnesses. 2008, this uh, shocking and unfortunately still true statistic out of WHO that 75% of people with serious mental illness in low- and middle-income countries never receive any treatment. That's still true. 
2009 Plus Medicine threw its hat in the ring with an article on global mental health. And 2010, finally, some funding, this time from Canada, um, through the Grand Challenges Program. Again, the uh, Global Burden of Disease study in 2010, now mental disorders were the leading cause of years of life spent disabled, which is a component of the DALIs. 2010, National Institutes of Mental Health um, published this very nice article in Nature, underlining the importance of research in global mental health. That's the first time NAMH had a comment on it. In the next year, they issued the first RFA, and The Lancet came out again in 2011 and said, we need more action. Nothing has happened. <laughs> so, once again. And then this very nice uh, report in, uh, by the World Economic Forum in 2011, another important statistic, that over the next two decades, 50% of the global economic burden from non-communicable disease will be caused by mental illness. So that's a very big deal. Um, 2012, WHO adopted its current focus, as you know, on non-communicable disease, which includes mental illness, the Mental Health Action Plan from the WHO, and the, uh, just last year, the first RFA specifically focused on global mental health as a K award. So what do I mean when I say mental illness? What exactly am I talking about? The lion's share of DALIs caused by mental disorders worldwide are caused by depression, about 40%. About 15% are caused by anxiety disorders, which includes post-traumatic stress disorder in these definitions, and I'll tell you more about that later. The rest, uh, substance abuse, alcohol, and schizophrenia. So what research is needed? Uh, really, a question is more like what research is not needed. There, <laughs> there are about seven of us worldwide that do, uh, do research on common mental disorders among adults in low- and middle-income countries. There are a couple of psychologists on the East Coast. There's a team at the London School. There's a PI in Germany, a PI in South Africa, and a couple of PIs in Australia. Most of the research, aside from one study that was done in India, um, ha is T1-level research. And this reminds me of what Dr. Goosby was discussing as the stovepipe uh, strategy. Most of those interventions have been... Um, have been have used psychotherapy, evidence-based psychotherapy interventions um, delivered through a task-shifting model, which is a good idea to train paraprofessionals to deliver the psychotherapies, but primarily delivered through standalone psychosocial services with no measures of other health outcomes. We know there are many physical health comorbidities with uh, the sorts of uh, with people who have mental illnesses, and also with no integration into priority care services like primary care settings or HIV care settings. And I'll come back to those points in a minute. I want to tell you a bit about the work that we've done. Uh, this was a first study that I did as a resident and a fellow with Darfur refugees uh, living in Cairo. I had worked with. Um, worked with uh, Darfur refugees and in Sudan prior to medical school, so I was going back to a population I knew, I knew a bit. Uh, we first did um, a mental health care needs assessment, an ethnographically informed study, in order to see what was needed. Um, of course, as you know, 
um, emotions are heavily influenced by culture and uh, mental disorders are also um, heavily influenced by culture. So we needed to understand what sort of illnesses and symptoms they were having, how to talk to them about it, if they even wanted us to talk to them about it. Of course, mental illness has a lot of stigma, and it can be hard to address cross-culturally. We also needed to make sure our measures were valid. Uh, The symptoms, like I said, for example, of depression that you might have here would be different, could be different in other settings. What we found was uh, that something called interpersonal psychotherapy, which is a very well-established, evidence-based, proven monotherapy for depression in U.S. and in Europe, would be a good fit with the types of problems that we saw, which included a great deal of not only depression and PTSD, but interpersonal violence. Um, So we trained local community members, uh, paraprofessionals, Uh, within a program that wanted to develop its psychosocial services and uh, did a a brief uh, and small study, pilot RCT. Um, And this was the first study, actually only the second study, to use paraprofessionals to deliver IPT in low-resource settings and the first one to use it for PTSD in those settings. And even with the small size of the pilot study, we saw these dramatic decreases. It was a bit like a drop of water in a desert. We saw a 63% decrease of depression symptoms, a 40% decrease of PTSD symptoms, and these large uh, effect size change scores. Um, I should mention in the prior study and also in this one, everyone in the, in the study received treatment. Um, this was a weightless crossover group, so everyone got treatment in the end. Our next study was with Szechuan earthquake survivors. So the 2008 earthquake, if you remember, created a great deal of, um, of interpersonal distress, in part because of the damage done to schools and all the deaths of school children because of the time of day of the occurrence and also the... Um, the uh, um, shot, the construction of the schools. And so there we used a similar model. We did start with the mental health care needs assessment, found again that IPT was a good fit, trained local providers to deliver the treatment. And we got these, um, this figure um, is, is kind of one of the most fun figures to look at from the study, um, these very tidy-looking parallelograms that we got. So IPT is in the orange. You can see a dramatic decrease in depression symptoms and uh, PTSD symptoms between weeks 1 and 12. This was uh, weekly treatment for 12 weeks, while the Tau group maintained uh, about the same level of symptoms. At week 12, when we offered IPT, uh, provided IPT to the Tau group, you see a dramatic drop in their uh, symptoms and uh, a maintenance of the gains over the next three months for the group that received IPT in the first half. So my work now focuses on HIV-positive women in South uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, which is not as much of a switch as it might sound like. Um, The reason that we focus on traumatized populations is because they bear the most acute burden of uh, depression and anxiety disorders. And HIV-positive women happen to be one of the most traumatized groups in the world. Um, they have very high rates of gender-based violence across every epidemic, um, multiple and different drivers of that relationship. Uh, suffice to say that about uh, two-thirds, uh, and about two-thirds worldwide of HIV-positive women experience gender-based violence. In Sub-Saharan Africa, where we work, we find it closer to 90 percent, uh, and. So um, the problem with gender-based violence is that it leads to very high rates of depression and PTSD. 
um, also close to 75, up to 90%. So bad enough to have HIV, depression, and PTSD, but the problem is that those interact uh, to exacerbate one another. People with PTSD and depression are much less likely to take their HIV medications and therefore much less likely to, to die from HIV-related illness. So we're talking about um, a very pressing, urgent mental health issue, but also one that can lead to mortality. So uh, this spring, we'll be starting an RCT in collaboration with FACES. We work in the Nyanza province um, with FACES. And uh, we'll be running a similar, our, our, our uh, study will have a similar structure for the sake of time. I won't go through it, but just want to mention that this study is going to be different in a number of ways that I'll highlight on the, on the last slide, which is next. Um, first of all, we're using a much more of a medical model. We're um, partnering with our collaborators in HIV and neurology to measure adherence, to measure neurocognitive status given the HIV infection uh, and we're also working with an HIV care delivery system, so integrating mental health care services. And um, thinking on a T3 level, we're partnering with health economists to measure the, uh, to do cost analysis of this program in order to uh, make fiscal arguments down the road for scale up. If there's one slide I'd really like you to take home from this presentation, it's this one. Here at UCSF, um, this is uh, what I hope will be the five-year plan for development of global mental health research here at UCSF. We have an incredible opportunity to impact a very, very important field in global health that accounts for a massive burden worldwide of disability. We already have an excellent start in T1 research using a medical model. We're starting from a basis in psychiatry with wonderful medical collaborators. That's moving ahead very well now. Our T2 work also benefits from the phenomenal HIV research at UCSF and developing primary care research. We're working with those colleagues to develop mental health care services that are thoroughly integrated with priority care systems. On a T3 level, we have GeekCon and many other great groups for uh, looking at the, uh, at the health economist angles of the work and making strong fiscal arguments to policymakers. In every one of these levels and many other projects that I, I didn't have a chance to talk with you about, there, is many, there are many, many opportunities for collaboration and also for trainees to get involved. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Susan, for uh, uh, presenting this timely and, and, and really outstanding work. Um, our last speaker is going to be uh, my friend Payam Nahid. He's, uh, he's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and um, a, uh, an expert in, uh, in TB uh, diagnostics and treatment. He's going to be sharing with us over the next couple of minutes some of his uh, wonderful work that's being supported by the CDC and the NIH, mostly in, uh, in Vietnam. Yeah, thank you, Sam, for the uh, introduction. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Sapolveda and Volbading for in giving me the opportunity to present to you today on a project that's really in its infancy, but uh, it's exciting and it's taking off. So I wanted to uh, tell you a bit about what's going on. I also want to acknowledge the fact that uh, I am just one uh, small cog in a large wheel of global health research and activities that the Division of Pulmonary does at San Francisco General Hospital. So it's a particular privilege to have been asked to, to represent. I'm only going to tell you about this one project. 
The other thing I should mention is that I hope tuberculosis is well known to all of you and doesn't really deserve or require in this audience anyway a, um, a large background uh, to, to why research is needed in this arena. Uh, eight to nine million cases per year, uh, one and a half million people die a year, number one killer of HIV patients, um, uh, what they, some people say equivalent of a jumbo jet going down every hour, every single day. Uh, so it's, it's got massive global burden, and um, that's the background. <clears throat> what I'll do now is um, just give you an introduction of this UCSF-Vietnam uh, National Tuberculosis Program Partnership in TB Research. I'll introduce you to what the CDC uh, has going in terms of TB research, and it's one of its arms, research arms is the TB Trials Consortium. I'll give you a very brief overview of some research studies we've done in the relative short period that we've been in Vietnam, in Hanoi, uh, doing TB research, and I'll give you uh, future activities uh, that we've got planned. Uh, the common theme here between uh, the prior two talks and mine is that uh, the collaboration is all about the people. Um, I can show you lots of beautiful pictures of um, uh, clinics and uh, hospitals, but in reality, there's, these are very important um, relationships, I dare I say friendships, between um, people in country and us in academia here, uh, providing the sort of technical assistance and uh, the um, uh, oversight uh, where necessary to get projects going. What I show here are um, really uh, the, the leadership, I, I'd say, of the collaboration, but perhaps you'd go so far as to say these are not even the key people. The key people are in the ground in the clinics. Um, as Nisha pointed out, the sisters in the community, they're the ones who go and find the patients and get them followed up. Um, and so I don't have space to show you all those people. But there's a couple of things. One is this relationship with, professor, with Dr. Nyung, who's uh, just recently been promoted and soon to be promoted to professor, who's now the manager of the National Tuberculosis Program uh, in, in Vietnam, and um, his colleagues and research coordinators that we basically have put together to provide the infrastructure that um, allows us to do research. A key component of this is that it's embedded inside the National Tuberculosis Program. We haven't outsourced the research to a standalone clinic with state-of-the-art equipment. We've actually embedded it inside the NTP, the idea being that that is, like Dr. Goosby pointed out, a, a capacity-building capacity effort that has sustainability in, uh, going forward. I'm particularly proud to say that um, there have been students now with a relatively short period of time, both Vietnamese and U.S. Uh, trainees, that have taken advantage of this uh, new um, infrastructure and have uh, helped develop some new projects. So this is a particularly important point about sustainability. This is a map of central Hanoi. Um, our office is in the Hanoi Lung Hospital. Uh, this is the provincial level hospital where a lot of the patients are managed with lung disease and uh, TB. They oversee many, many clinics or district health centers across Hanoi. We have directly partnered and affiliated with seven, which are numbered here in red, um, where patients are screened, recruited, enrolled, and managed for TB. The National Lung Hospital is the headquarters of the National TB program, and uh, that's where Dr. Nyung is and our, our key collaborator. I also point out the National Institute of Hygiene and Epidemiology, uh, sort of an informal relationship has been uh, emerging with them. They're a former Pasteur Institute and uh, are very much involved and interested in the translational aspects and basic science aspects of TB. And so that's something that we hope to um, garner going forward. The organizational structure of our research uh, 
really the point of this slide is to show you that um, there's a lot of arrows, a lot of conversation, there's a lot of rapport, uh, as is true for many international projects. Vietnam is particularly vertical in its health system, and so these are the seven clinics I pointed out. Each one has a TB physician that we've identified as our primary contact. And it's vertical in that if the National Tuberculosis Program headquarters identifies a patient that's not followed up, they communicate with the Hanoi Lung Hospital, Hanoi Lung Hospital, uh, where our office is and our full-time coordinators and administrators are, um, communicate with the district health centers and send somebody out, a uh, commune health worker, out to the house and find the patient to achieve follow-up and appropriate management. The TB Trials Consortium, as I said, is one of the is actually the key was the key funding agency that made this happen. Um, we were successful to be award, we were successfully awarded a ten year contract um, to do clinical trials in uh, Vietnam in Hanoi, and really this established the, the formal funding needed for the relationship. The CDC uh, TB Trials Consortium is no um, a stranger to clinical trials. They've enrolled over thirteen thousand patients since 1995, and important, importantly, they conduct programmatically relevant research, uh, which again is, is a strength for us uh, and, and uh, a, a, a perfectly suited for the fact that we're embedded inside the NTP program. Hopefully, our activities will lead to programmatic um, benefits for them as well. Uh, the consortium has got uh, numerous sites, one of which is the Hanoi site that's linked with UC San Francisco. But you can see we've got uh, um, a site in Hong Kong, uh, Europe, uh, Africa, um, South America, and several sites in the United States. Unfortunately, because of recent budgetary cuts, um, Rio de Janeiro was recently closed. But we're, we're trying our best to, to have the adequate infrastructure across the consortium, we being the CDC, to make sure that the primary mission of the uh, TB Trials Consortium is maintained. I'm just going to tell you about one clinical trial that the TBTC um, has recently completed. This was presented at the American Thoracic Society meeting, um, but has not yet been published, so it's really sort of new, new data. In a Phase 2A uh, safety and efficacy trial to compare against rifampin as the uh, standard regimen as part of uh, four-drug uh, therapy for active smear-positive pulmonary tuberculosis, we looked at increasing doses of rifapentine administered daily uh, to see if we could uh, achieve better uh, efficacy and, uh, as measured by two-month culture status uh, as compared to the control arm, and also to look at its safety. So this was a 320-patient uh, study, and what we were delighted to find was that to achieve stable conversion on solid media by, by RPT as rifapentine dose in a modified intention-to-treat analysis... Um, by eight weeks, those who received uh, 1,200 milligrams of rifapentine had re- achieved a near 100%, actually 100% culture conversion uh, as compared to approximately 80-some percent on rifampin. To my knowledge, this is the only drug, it's a single substitution, rifapentine for rifampin, that's been a- able to achieve 100% culture conversion, um, albeit in a small pilot phase two study, but uh, it, it really is impressive. There also appears to be a a dose uh, response here. Liquid media is a lot more sensitive and and is an emerging um, tool, if you will, regulatory regulatory tool to look at um, culture conversion. And equally, again, uh, rifapentine did well. Again, a single substitution just for eight weeks, reaching nearly 100% culture conversion at at, um, 16 weeks. So we're looking at now potential to shorten the duration of treatment for TB from six months down. Enrollment, uh, Nisha pointed this out. 
We're delighted that um, you, Hanoi was uh, second place. Um, after Kampala, we had to truncate this graph because Kampala just broke records. But Kampala's been doing this for two decades. Um, Hanoi's been doing this for, since 2010. Um, in, it's, a, it's a major achievement. Um, this is UCSF. We tried and tried and tried. <laughs> Here's some other research activities we've done, pharmacokinetic studies, biobanking. We've done some uh, diagnostic studies uh, that colleagues in the pulmonary division and uh, uh, partners at Stanford and UC Berkeley have been involved with, one of which is a cell scope. It's from the Fletcher Lab at UC Berkeley. It uses a uh, cell phone, in this particular case an iPhone, as a, a, a sort of a mobile microscopy uh, device and allows us to ultra-decentralize diagnosis of TB, take images, transmit them over a cell phone tower, and even integrate uh, automated software to see if uh, a smear uh, done out very, very far in a rural area or in a community can, can diagnose patients. The latest iteration may use an iPad. A project that students and trainees have put together is a GPS and geographic information system um, of mapping MDR-TB in Hanoi. Um, Lilia Chason is one of the leads of this, and there have been students that have been referred to me by a, a wonderful resource, Colin Partridge, who keeps sending me just brilliant people, um, and several of the Hanoi uh, students. And this shows you a map of where the MDR cases are in Hanoi, and therefore the program can now invest in particularly geographically appropriate places for where they're finding their MDR cases. And here's an example of that GIS system where a patient can be looked at um, and uh, details can come up uh, beyond just the geographic location. In 2014, um, we're going to start uh, the first, to my knowledge, observational cohort in the modern era. Many of you may not know, but the Framingham study started off as a TB cohort, became a cardiovascular cohort, but we're revisiting this because there are a lot of unanswered questions in TB. We're also going to launch a phase three trial uh, looking at rifapentine for a treatment shortening uh, uh, regimen. And we're going to expand on the work that Aditya has been leading uh, through Nina Island, a uh, funded um, mobile phone microscopy. And one of my uh, cave fellows is going to look at secondhand smoke and risk of TB in children. The schema of study 31, this phase three trial, is uh, just, I want to show it to you, it's incredibly exciting. We're moving from a two phase regimen, the standard control regimen, evaluating a four-month regimen with the rifapentine substitution, and in this current uh, draft, looking at a three-month monophasic treatment for TB. The future for, for TB research in Hanoi is, from my perspective, to increase research opportunities for U.S. and Vietnamese students, develop a translational host-pathogen research uh, lab in Hanoi focused on the discovery of markers of TB persistence, and basically, in general, increase integration and research activities. That's my five-year or ten-year plan. And this is just a mock-up of an idea that I've been kicking around with an Hanoi Integrated Tuberculosis Studies Collaborative that brings together a clinical trials unit that we might run, a host pathogen unit that might be developed with uh, Oregon Health Sciences, and an existing epidemiology research uh, effort that the University of Sydney runs. I'm going to close with pictures because people love pictures. These are our collaborators um, in a midterm review. Every, I go to Hanoi four or five times a year. We do a, a review of our activities. This is a training uh, effort. You might call it lessons learned. We do lessons learned every six months from our studies. And um, these are our many collaborators, um, I, all of them uh, putting immense amount of time in. Um, not Anyway, this is an incredible group. So... In case in 12 minutes I gave you the impression that this was easy to do, 
It took us four years to get the Vietnam National uh, Ministry of Health to recognize us as, a, as an entity in, in Vietnam to do work. And so I'm pleased to show you that this came out just this month. And we have our official UCSF stamp that the Vietnam government has given us. So I can now stamp people's passports. If you can come up forward, I will, uh, you'll need this to get in the country. I end all my talks in Hanoi by showing these two bridges, the Golden Gate Bridge and the Long Bien Bridge um, in Hanoi. Um, my idea here is that this is a bi-directional relationship, bi-directional friendship, and we're building bridges between us, and hopefully they'll, they'll last and sustained. Thank you. Thank you, Payam. Um, boy, I, I, you describe your your program as being in its infancy, I guess. I'd love to be an infant uh, with our program. That's really impressive. So we've got about two minutes. Um, can I uh, <clears throat> quickly invite the speakers up? Uh, are there any questions from the audience as we wait? I'll go ahead and get started. Um, so, Nisha, going back to the first talk, um, you talked about this, this, this hurdle that's been presented with these new regulations from the India, Indian government. I, I couldn't help but think that that may be a trend that we see in other, in other countries where we do research as well. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and how you, how you might proceed. Yes, I mean, I think that's, I think that's you know, likely to be the case. And I mean, this is the first time that we've experienced this, but I, I've heard of, of other groups also running into similar issues in other countries. I mean, I think the issue in India is, you know, way beyond our research group. It's really a political one. And I think there's a basis to it. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we live in a new world where every trial that's done, you know, has to be accountable and has to follow certain standards. And I think any one person who goes into a country and, you know, does something maybe that's a little bit out of line jeopardizes the experience for, for everyone. And so I, I, don't, I don't think this is obviously an issue for us here. But, um, you know, I, all I can say is I, I think we, we live in a new world where it's, you know, not the old days where we can just go into a, a place and take advantage of a country anymore. Um, and all I can say now is that we're trying to advocate for, you know, for, for the Indian government to try to change the, the rules so that it's, you know, helpful for, for them so that their public feels like their patients are going to be well taken care of, but also so it doesn't jeopardize their scientific future. I mean, this problem has not only hurt us, but it's really hurt our Indian collaborators. They had done an immense amount of work, you know, with... Um, to really get to the stage, and now they're being shut out. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you, but Paul. Do you have a question? question for yes. Um, one of the challenges that, that we see. It's, it's good. Um, it is. You guys uh, here in the back. One, one, one of the challenges that we see in, in various disciplines is uh, is growing young faculty members in an area uh, of relevance to global health because there often aren't uh, research supports for their early careers. Is, is that a challenge in psychiatry where there is, um, where it's just so new? Yes, it is. Um, although, you know, I actually made a decision to come out here to UCSF um, despite the fact that there might have been um, a little more mentorship available in global mental health um, at other at other sites that just happen for one reason or another to be a little further ahead, um, because I wanted to do something differently. Um, I didn't. Uh, I thought that um, most of the work that had been done when I was entering residency was descriptive. It was epidemiological. 
Um, I wanted to do treatment intervention research and address the gap rather than talk about it again. <laughs> so, so I actually, um, you know, I kind of chose uh, to have somewhat of a difficult path by coming to a place that didn't have as much um, mental health uh, research. But what I what I found here and what I've been so fortunate to find here is. Um, just phenomenal uh, growth of, you know, led by you and Hailey and Jaime um, of, uh, of global health uh, mentorship. And, you know, it was actually you, Paul, who, um, who helped get me integrated initially with HIV research. And, and um, that was um, an enormously helpful thing for me. So I think... Um, you know, fortunately, the two kind of needs come together as junior researchers doing something new. Um, you need uh, mentorship from other collaborators, and um, and it will have to come from fields outside of your own if you're doing something new. And fortunately for the field, that is actually the critical piece for moving, in my opinion, global health forward. So it works for both sides, I think. I, I think that's a fitting way to end. I know there are other questions, but we'll uh, we'll have to hold them for the break. Sorry, Pam. We'll get you. We'll get you later. Okay. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.